In October 2019, a team of visually impaired and sighted artists and collaborators took journeys together into the city of Bristol with the aim of uncovering the usually unheard stories of visually impaired citizens and returning these stories to the heart of the city narrative. The journeys were recorded and revealed such a treasure trove of insights and shared experiences that the City of Threads podcast was born. Each episode is hosted by core members of that team and features the journeys they took. So join us on an immersive audio journey into the City of Threads. Welcome to You Either Get Hit by a Bike or You Don't. I just say it's a political lie. A couple of people panicked. You're born with sight, but you're lacking in vision. <laughs> Veterinitis pigmentosa. Um, I don't know why I said that. But anyway. In the eyes of the general public, I appear not to have a culture or a colour. I, uh, my dominant feature that stands out and what I would tend to be described as is the blind lady. You know, so they don't really understand what the stick is. Plus, I probably don't help myself because my cane is pink. Um, <laughs> not white. Um, but they, um, but I do get a lot of that. So I get all of it, you know, watch where you're going and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, a guy once said, why, why are you walking around with that staff? Oh, I, was, I, was, I was waiting to go into a loo and I was sort of just leaning on it. But it's still a white cane. It's like, who do you think you are, Lord and Manor, going around with your staff? I don't know. Like Gandalf from yeah. Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yeah. That's Anila Wood, Chris Turner, and me, Barrington Chambers. Barrington and I are your co-hosts for this episode, where we'll be following the three journeys each of us took into Bristol. We'll be meeting Anila again later in the episode, but let's start with Chris's journey. Are you ready, Chris? Let's do it. Chris took his city journey with his friend and colleague, Linda who I think I might have slightly freaked out because I do like to steam ahead. Chris is, uh, yeah, guiding himself at the moment and, um, yeah, it's a bit stressful. <laughs> okay, I'm a bit nervous, probably, because um, there's a bucket ahead. Um, so hopefully he'll see that. <laughs> and there's a massive A-board and uh, crates along here. So I'm not sure if you can navigate through here, Chris, take care of this. Abled and crates, so. That's them later on in their journey. But for now, we're going to where all the journeys began, to the light studio at Arnolfini, where Chris and Linda are sitting with other people taking a journey that day. Okay, uh, so I'm Chris Turner. I've got RP or retinitis pigmentosa, which I won't do, but I always want to say it in a Scottish accent for some reason. Let him make his pigment dozer. Vision-wise, I can see light and dark, uh, mainly in my right eye. Um, I do find light, strong light, um, reflected light, kind of irritating. But like an idiot, I've left my sunglasses at home. Uh, but I think we'll be all right today. Um, 
I use a long cane to get around, but I'm going to be a bit lazy and get a guide for a lot of the uh, journey today. But uh, Linda will um, let you know when uh, you know I can run off, sort of thing. Okay. Uh, and yeah, if there's anything like major, uh, unusual, you know, lorries backing into things or roadworks, that kind of thing, um, yeah, I'm sure you'll let me know. Yeah. Yeah, I'll look out for any manhole covers in case I disappear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you disappear, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll panic. Uh, yeah. And fully prepared for any scenario, they head out. As we begin, just a heads up, that in this episode you'll be hearing quite a bit of this sound. Which is the sound of the long cane, as all three travellers in this episode use them. Take a moment to stand together. Notice your breath, the ground beneath your feet, the movement of the air and the sounds of the city. Outside Arnolfini, before they set off, Linda reads the first of the four wild cards designed to tune our travellers' senses into the city. The movement of air and the aromas, flavours and textures that you encounter along the way. Yeah. Yeah. I can't smell much, but I've got a bit of a cold. Oh. <laughs> I, did, I tell you what I heard earlier, I'm just going to record it anyway. When I was walking in, uh, it was quite interesting because it sounded like the water was breathing and it was just where it was lapping against the uh, the wall down there. It was making a quite a weird noise when I walked in this morning. Yeah. And they set off along the cobbled harbour side, where houseboats and yachts are moored and pedestrians stroll by. They pass a bridge and turn down a side street between two tall buildings on their way to Chris's first stopping point. While they're doing that, a bit more about Chris, who I have known for over 20 years. So I was born in uh, Wandsworth in South London in the uh, late 70s. I um, was born partially sighted and initially went to a mainstream school. Um, at that time, whilst they knew I had some sight problem, it wasn't clear exactly how bad it was. And um, I had to have like um, tests at Moorfield because it all came to light because I would be running across the room uh, to get something, but not see the, the coffee table in the way and trip over that. Uh, and was forever walking into things, banging my head at school and things like that. I think they thought I was stupid for, for a little while. He then moved to a second primary school. Which was mainstream, but it had the very uh, politically incorrect 80s name. Um, the class I was in was called the Visually Handicapped Unit. Um, so you kind of spent time in there and then the rest of the time in a mainstream class. I was there and then secondary school was a school dedicated for partially sighted children. Um, which was good, obviously, you know, much more focus on education in terms of how they could help people with sight problems. Uh, but it was a very small school. There was only like, I think, about 70 kids from the age of three to 16. At 16, Chris then attended the Royal National College for the Blind in Hereford, where he learned Braille, got his A-levels, and was offered a place on the fine art degree at University West of England in Bristol. So, wait for the bus to go past. This is stop number one. I'm just coming on to King Street. Uh, I'm just uh, 
walking by, well, Linda's with me, I'm not getting a guide now. Um, and King Street, why is this my first stop? Back in the city journey, we've arrived at Chris's first stopping point. Named after Charles II, King Street is a cobbled street with an array of pubs and restaurants that dates back to the 17th century. Chris was one of the few journey leads who recorded his audio whilst travelling. Many chose not to, as the act of navigating alone requires a significant amount of focus and concentration. I think mainly, well, I've walked up and down it thousands of times since living in Bristol. Um, I used to live round the corner when I was a student, and it's got very... It's a very iconic street, I suppose. It's got um, very old buildings on it. Um, it's also got distinctive sounds. It's cobbled, so there's a quite sort of noisy, I guess, uh, not in a in an unpleasant way. Um, and normally, though not today, but you can often hear seagulls kind of reeling around in the sky. So if you're sat outside having a drink, it does feel like you're in a quite an old. Port City, which you are, so it's quite authentic. As Chris travels down his favourite street, let's step into his shoes and hear how he experiences the sounds, textures and aromas of this old part of the city. I'm on the pavement at the moment, I can hear there's a car up ahead. But as we get to the corner by the King William, I'm going to actually walk in the road because it's uh, the pavement's quite crowded. Yeah, so I just sort of walk down the kind of the middle of the road. But to the... It's quite nice walking along the cobbles as well. I've got quite thick soles on, so you can kind of bounce along. Oh, the smell as well. You get the smell of wood burners. Now it's a bit chilly. Yeah. I'm going to go back on the pavement on the left by the old Vic, are we? Yeah, there's a, there's a wooden um, cellar hatch thing just outside the old Vic, isn't it? Or the uh, Renaissance. But it's quite nice because it bounces as you walk over it. So it's sort of quite springy. Chris and Linda stop at the end of King Street to read the second wild card. So on the next part of your journey, notice the landmarks and strategies that you use to navigate the city. These might be tactile or visual landmarks or particular sounds or smells that you use to get your bearings um, or recognise where you are. Um, if you can, um, you can tell me about them so that I can notice them as well. Okay, so that was one definitely on that side, the um, wooden hatch thing. As they continue down the more modern Queen Charlotte Street, Chris points out the landmarks he uses to navigate. A parking metre, a tree, a steep curb, then... And on the left is where I used to live, the student hall. Oh, here? Yeah. Oh, wow. The Rat Cave. What did you call it? Yeah, that's what it's called, the Rat Cave. Let's call it the Rat Cave. Chris told sound designer Dan and Pico Theatre's director, Rachel, a bit more about the delights of the Rat Cave and his time at university. I came to Bristol in '96 to go to UWE uh, Bower Ashton, 
And the first year was great. I was living in halls. Um, I didn't quite get it together, though, organisation-wise, to um, get into a shared house for the second year. So on the second year, I had to move into halls. So I arrived on the train with a hold all full of stuff. And it was pretty poorly organised, really. Um, I was staying in a hall of residence on Queen Charlotte Street. But there was no one there with the keys, which I didn't know until I got there. So I then had to get a cab from there up to Frenchay, which at the time uh, had the nickname Bosnia. Um, I think it was in a bit of a state of disrepair around there. And uh, collect a key from there and then get a cab back. So, you know, just after travelling London with basically as much stuff as you could fit into a hold or and then 20 quid down and you haven't even set foot in your new uh, abode. The residence itself is actually just a converted office block with all the charm and sophistication that implies. Um, yeah, pretty much the toilet did look like it was a stock room or a stock cupboard. <laughs> I'm trying not to laugh. It's really <laughs> hot It's very it well delivered. <laughs> <laughs> there's, kind of, there's a big pillar in the living room and it's just like, yeah. Anila Wood who you heard at the start of this episode, also went to University West of England, in Bristol, although it was ten years after Chris. Here they are on a Zoom call comparing their experiences. I did have some interaction with the disabled student advisor, but looking back, and I think it was only in the first couple of weeks, just in terms of getting help finding my way around the building and, and that sort of thing. But I had to rely on other students to read actual print and notices and things like that. Um, because it was fine art, it was... It's very sort of practical, hands-on. You're kind of left to your own devices a lot anyway. I mean, I could see a bit better then, although not enough to sort of read, but I could sort of paint after a fashion. But as my sight got worse over the those years, by the end I was doing sculpture. I didn't have to read that many books. It was mainly, you know, you were mainly sort of practical. And I, there's, I, I got told off by the technicians occasionally for using a drill and they said, oh, you shouldn't be using that. It's all right. It's, you know, don't put your hand right in front of it. You're fine. Yeah, and then you'll be fine. Yeah. They did very different courses. I went to UE and I studied English, and I went from 2001 to 2004. So it was a um, a bachelor's degree. It was good. I enjoyed it, but it was a very different experience by the sounds of it to yours. So I had quite a lot of contact with um, the the disability support team. They provided me with a support worker who was also a note taker. So she came to my lectures and seminars because basically being English, there was lots of um, lots of handouts, lots of quotes, lots of paperwork, lots of stuff going up on the boards or the screens. And at the same time in the, in the seminars, there was quite a lot of discussion about the, the books and the poems and the novels that we were studying. So I worked quite intensely with this person, which was brilliant as far as access goes but I think sometimes isolated me a bit from other students. One thing that's quite funny is the social, like people would pass me and say hello, and I was never quite sure. I had to sort of train people to say, if you say hello, just say your name. Say who you are. Yeah. 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 No, I found exactly the same, um, just to try to tell people. I wasn't, I know it be hard to believe, but I wasn't that confident when I started university, so I didn't sort of say to people, who are you, or tell me who you are. I, a lot of the, I spent a lot of time just pretending I knew who they were and just going along with the conversation. Both Chris and Anila had to advocate for themselves to get what they needed, all the way through university and right up to the graduation ceremony itself. My needs. Even like the graduation ceremony, I had to have conversations about, I want to go on stage to receive my certificate. 
in a dignified way. I said, yeah. I don't want someone holding on to me and dragging me onto the stage and dragging me off. Yeah, I was absolutely terrified I was going to trip up the stairs. Yeah, um, me too. I was all right in the end, but that was, <laughs> and then it makes it worse because then you're thinking about it. Yeah, and you just think, because now that I've worried about it and thought about it, it's definitely going to happen. And I just remember saying to them, I don't want everyone looking at it afterwards or watching me, just sort of thinking, oh, look at the blind girl, bless them, having to help her and stuff. You know, I didn't want that pity kind of thing. So I I actually made them do, we did a walkthrough. We we planned it to within an inch of its being, you know. Because that was the other thing, is like walking past and thinking, yeah, might end up at the back because it's in the cathedral. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Or Or sitting on someone or something else cringy. (laughs) I did all right in the end, but I did feel like I was at a disadvantage. Like all other students go to university, they study, um, they study, they they do their thing and they have their social life. And some of them might have a side job or something. But I felt certainly for me that there was a whole other load of things to have to balance at the same time that meant the load was heavier than than perhaps for my, my peers. But it's quite interesting talking about the support and stuff. Obviously, the technology of the time, it was all on cassettes. Um, yes. That kind of thing. I guess um, now the challenges will still be there, but with technology having moved on so far, I guess some of this stuff is, you know, seems like it should be uh, easily solvable. In their city journey, Chris and Linda are leaving Queen Charlotte Street and memories of university days, and heading off towards Chris's second stopping point. But before we follow them, let's hear from someone whose job it is to support visually impaired students now. Okay, so I'm Tara Chatterway, and I manage the Student Support Service at Thomas Pocklington Trust. The Thomas Pocklington Trust supports blind and visually impaired people to live the life they choose, and its Student Support Service provides help and advice to blind and visually impaired students, 16 plus, to undertake the further education that they choose. The university has responsibility under the Equality Act to provide support for students with vision impairment. So that's to meet some of their basic support needs. And in addition to that, there is um, a government grant called Disabled Students Allowance. And that's a free grant that's available for all disabled students to help them to meet the additional costs um, that they may face um, attending universities. Disabled Students Allowance, or DSA, provides support for equipment like laptops or brailers and can also provide support for something called non-medical help. So non-medical help is the support that you may require from a person. So that could be... Um, note-taking, it could be guiding, it could be some more kind of complex transcribing of materials, but the university is responsible for basic transcriptions of all materials. To get DSA, students first have to have an assessment and prove that their disability will impact their ability to learn. The assessment is then sent to the student loan company, who either approve or question it. Once successful, students are allocated support but it is their responsibility to organise that support, as well as approach the university's disability service, which involves another assessment of their needs around things like transcription and guiding support. Every university has a disability service, and so you contact your disability service from the earliest opportunity as possible and find out what support that they offer. Not all disability advisors will have an understanding of the needs of students with vision impairment because they may not have many students coming through. And as we know, uh, each student's need is very different to another student. So again, there is a lot of responsibility on the student 
to make sure that the support that they need is in place and that they're having those conversations. I wouldn't say that that should be a reason not to apply for disabled students allowance or not to go to university because disabled students allowance really, really does make a massive difference to students. It's just that sometimes, not for all students, but for some it can be a bit of a journey to get that support in place, which is why our service is here. We will have a conversation with you and then we will help you to find a solution. So we really want people to keep applying for university and apply for DSA. We just want to be able to help, help them to navigate that journey. From navigating one kind of journey to navigating another, we're rejoining Chris and Linda in one of the busier parts of the city. We've just gone across the cycle path, Chris, and there's not really any delineation no, between those. How are they? Uh, well, they're kind of... You either get hit by a bike or you don't. They cross another busy road, come across a deliciously textured wall. You know those biscuits you get in tins? Oh yeah. The, um, sorry, I can't oh, not the Viennese one. That oh, kind of thing, they're all swirly. Oh right, so yeah. you get all, yeah, this is from the, um, just some squares that are in the build side yeah. of the building, aren't they? On the side of a very old yeah. building. Then get a bit lost. Yeah. This is a bit where we're on the side of the, the pub where the Christmas steps is. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, there's some music shops there, isn't it? Um. then find themselves again outside Chris's second stopping point. So we're stood outside PMT, strange name, but PMT Music on Rupert Street and this is stop number two. Um, the reason I stopped here is this music shop, I've been coming here for as long as I've been in Bristol I think. One incident when I was working nearby, I came out at lunchtime and made a bit of a, a foolish uh, judgement to sort of half run across the road because I could hear the uh, pelican beeping but unfortunately I ran into a post and a knocked a tooth out um, which was not fully out, uh, kind of hanging out and someone stopped and helped me and I sat in the music shop here and someone called an ambulance and they took me in and split the tooth back in so that was a... Uh, so I don't run anymore but um, we're going to go into the shop now see if we can record. Hopefully some people playing the stuff. And, uh, yeah, it's very open here, isn't it? Where would you like to stand? Where would you like to stand? Well, it's just a complete paradise for anybody that's into music. So, you walked in, towards the left, there's just guitar... Guitars, 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 all hanging up across the wall, all hanging up. It's like a shit. And all hanging up on um, stands, and then there's speakers, and then there's more guitars and more speakers, more amps, massive amps. And there's a guy actually playing um, just by one of the um, posts in the middle, and uh, he looks quite cool. And he's just playing. And he looks like he's having a great time. And then further down the shop, there's loads of keyboards, loads of organs on the right-hand side. And then further around from there, there's a huge amount of drums. So I might, you might lose me. If I, if you, if I disappear, I'm by the drums. So I've been playing, um, well, I play guitar mainly, which I've done since um, 18, just quite a number of years now. Barrington and Chris share a common thread of music. Mostly sort of 
heavy metal kind of music. But recent years broadened out more into electronics and synthesizers and that kind of thing and becoming interested in the whole sort of sound design. I mainly record just at home, but I um, like to have jams when I can. And uh, I've had a few jams with Barrington, which have been great fun. We played at the... Um, Trinity Centre. Yes, that was, oh, I remember the first time. I think Chris was very nervous to come over there. I said, Chris, come on, mate. You can play guitar. Don't worry yourself. <laughs> Barrington and I have been working on a couple of pieces, been over to mine, um, recorded some lyrics and slowly yes. trying to arrange that and, uh, yeah, yeah, give that back to him. It's like designing something for your own self, you know? Because what I didn't want to do is overcomplicate it. So I told Chris what to do over it then and the style of guitar sound I would like to hear on it. It's been good... Uh, learning experience as well trying to produce this sort of music that i haven't really produced before i, I listen to a bit of reggae but it's um it's different to the sort of thing i would normally kind of try and record and lay down but yeah it's, it's good lots of reverb yes yeah the first bass note always hits with the kick drum and a lot of people even professional musicians didn't realize that i said hit the, the, the bass the first bass note with the kick drum boom so then you cannot miss your timing. Just the bass and the drums starts together, then the keyboard comes on top with the guitar chipping. Back with our travellers who have left the music shop and headed for the last stop on their journey. Chris is demonstrating to Linda a particular trick he has for finding the way. Find this alley is I have to do it by the sound. Okay. Yeah, because I'm trying to hear this, that kind of noise. Ah, so what's it? Okay. Uh, so sort the of echo, which I'm, you know, if I can get to the wall there. Yeah. The stalls are in the way, but let's hear that kind of. You can hear it's echoey, but open. Ah, okay. Sounds are a key component of the strategies and landmarks Chris and other City of Threads travellers use to get around. I always say that we use sound marks and not landmarks to navigate the city. You know certain roads by the sound, so obviously very distinct places like uh, King Street with yeah. cars driving over the cobbles and even on the bus. Um, there's a bit in the centre, I was on the bus, I was actually listening to a Joy Division track on headphones but it's, it, it mingled with a kind of vague echo of the bus around the buildings, and it was really, really good, really atmospheric. Anila again. I find that sound changes in the different spaces that I go to, whether it's a closed space or an open space or a covered area or, or just an open top area. And then, like you just pointed out about the echoes, they make a difference as well. Um, a lot of the time I've got shoes that make a sound, so the sound, that sound changes as well, depending on where I'm walking. Um, and the, the sound of the stick on the floor also changes in different places, and that sort of helps me to know, rec you know, you kind of get to recognise the sounds that you, you visit regularly, and you just sort of get to know them a bit. Um, sometimes in like places like in, in the city, in the centre, can be quite difficult because the majority of the sounds is traffic, um, and that kind of distorts the sounds that I actually want to hear, which are a bit more helpful, like whether it's the sound of water or the sound of... Certain shots playing music a bit louder than others, or the sound coming from a cafe or something. Let's spend a few moments with Anila on her journey. 
We're sat right opposite the water fountain. It's not spraying us, so that's good. <laughs> Anila took her journey into the city with Katie, one of the core City of Threads team. They are sat in Quaker's Friars, a popular shopping area of Bristol, discussing how Anila uses sound to navigate. But I like that here because the water fountain kind of helps navigate you around this space because it's also an open space but there's obviously it's a, it's a very um, prominent sound to know where you are and then sometimes you do get the food smells which are a clue as well. Um, the fountain always on? Yes, yeah. I've, I've never known it not to be okay. on. Um, it's at different levels but it is, yeah, I can't really think of a time when it's not on. Uh, yeah, and then obviously the sound of the road as well helps you to know roughly where you are. It's, um, it's an interesting space. Anila and Katie's journey was characterised by a series of sensory discoveries. We have arrived at Castle Park and we're just looking at the bit, well, which I didn't even know about, but Katie was just telling me about the bit where there's the allotments where people are growing different vegetables and things and, and apparently people can come and pick, pick things and take them. It, I can smell things, it smells very green and fresh here and it's, it's lovely with the sun shining and the breeze isn't too rough here. It's fairly calm and quiet and... Um, yeah, it's, um, it's definitely a smell, isn't there, in the air? A herby, earthy, even like cut grass, maybe? I can't notice it. Yeah. Oh, yes, I can. I yeah. can notice, like, damp grass. Yeah, wow. yeah. Okay. And with all that rain, so, and then we've just been feeling some of the leaves and stuff. Giant, giant marrow leaves? We think it's going to be a marrow or courgette, don't we? Which is interesting, because they feel quite wrinkly and quite dry and maybe a tiny bit rubbery kind of and a bit hairy yeah yeah i wonder if they have a smell oh well yeah so my fingers smell quite green now that earthy sort of leafy smell um, what else I'm do we have i'm going to take you down to a giant marrow flower oh wow oh wow that's like a lovely um sort of gold almost like an egg yolk beautiful orangey yellow wow flower it almost feels a bit like a tulip doesn't it but like a wide open one yeah yeah <laughs> and very wet so where in the park is in castle park is this bit then so this plant bed is directly down from the old church oh okay so it's in between the church and the river. Okay, so we're just looking at the um, the church and we've, we've walked up Castle Park to come towards the church. We just touched the wall as well and it was quite surprising. It was more crumbly than I thought it was going to be and very um, rough, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's rough, it's uneven. Yeah. To look at, it's actually all different colours as well. Oh, is it really? All the stones are like everything from red to white to grey to beige to... Damp black. I suppose that it would make quite a good landmark for those of the bit of site and actually for if I if I got here and touched that wall it might kind of tell me where it is because it's not your ordinary average wall. Yeah. <laughs> but you know the church hasn't got a roof on it. Oh has it not? So so it's all just like really exposed walls. Many of the journeys resulted in shared discoveries for both travellers. Here, textures, sights, smells and sounds combine to create a new sensory map of Castle Park for both Katie and Anila. But let's head back now to the end of the sound marks discussion with Chris and Barrington. Being uh, reliant on sound, you can really get messed up with the weather. So if it's heavily raining, um, I find I can't wear a hood because it I just no, feels unsafe. exactly. You wouldn't put a hoodie on. <clears throat> You'd more get umbrella and a hat. Yeah. Yeah, you can't hear roads or traffic properly. Yeah. Yes, that's true. Uh, wind as well is a can be a bit of a nightmare trying to cross a road. Being interested in music and sound, sound design generally, I think this does make uh, 
it means I concentrate more or more attentive to the different sounds of you know the um, environment indoors or outdoors but it's almost like sound texture that some places in the city have just the the way traffic noise reverberates off buildings or if there's um, even in some places that you know quite urban but you can hear loads of birds or obviously being a a port city there's a lot of water and there's definitely these different kind of uh, sonic aspects back to chris and linda and the alleyway where things aren't going quite to plan the only thing is it's blocked now by a tent as the alleyway is blocked by a tent and a table so they take the long way around and arrive finally at Chris's last stopping point. Uh, not bad, yeah, 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 yeah. You're right, yeah. We're outside the Crown, one of Chris's favourite pubs, right in the middle of bustling St Nick's Market, and where Chris has bumped into a regular. Yeah, yeah just, um, just getting a juice rather than having a beer, I'm just going to have a juice. Oh, fair play. Yeah. Just going in for a quick half. <laughs> a quick half in the Crown, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed yeah, I thought we'd do that. <laughs> I, only, I was on it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Yeah, and, um, yeah, yeah. I got I got to leave it alone now and then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nice to see you anyway. Uh, yeah, yeah. Sure. I always find the door by trying to find the metal thing. Or oh, well, I can hear the door actually. So we'll go in. Inside the Crown, they do what people do in pubs. Cool. Um, do you just want a drink? I chose the Crown Pub as one of my stops uh, because it's one of those places I've gone to pretty much on and off for the last 20 odd years. Uh, I first went there when I was a student. Um, a friend who was a student at the time worked in there. And then a good mate of mine um, as well worked in there for a few years. And it's one of these, more so in the past, it was kind of a sort of alternative rock, gothy, punk type place. Um, had a good jukebox, uh, you know, lots of classic classic metal, if you like that sort of thing. Um, and it's, a lot, uh, yeah, over the years I've watched quite a few World Cup games in there. There's, um, I usually listen to it on a cheap kind of AM radio, but you have the problem, it's always a few seconds ahead of the uh, TV footage. Um, so there's that problem of reacting to a goal before anyone else. And as, as a mate, um, I know from there, um, a sighted guy, but he did the same thing and it earned him the nickname, which has kind of stuck for years, uh, the nickname Future Dave, because of this being several seconds into the future in the football games. Um, but yeah, it's one of those places I tend to pop into um, more or less every time I pass it, because um, it's... I think the thing is, once you know your way around inside a place where the toilets are and the bar, the, you know, the important stuff, and the staff are good in there, so you can kind of... Although it can get quite busy, you feel quite comfortable in there, and it's, you know, it's good. Back in the Crown, drinks have arrived. Oh, cheers, Chris. Uh, cheers. Thanks for inviting me on your uh, trip. That's right, thanks for coming, you. Once back from their journey, Linda reflected on how nervous Chris's you either get hit by a bike or you don't approach had made her feel, and being surprised by the fact she'd felt that way, as she knows that Chris regularly navigates the city on his own. 
Whilst Chris admitted it was a welcome break to have Linda as his guide, pointing out and describing the cityscape as they travelled through it together. And we're taking a break here too. Yes, that's enough of me. When we come back, it's time for a change of scene. Welcome back to City of Threads. You either get hit by a bike or you don't. I am Byron Chambers. I'm Chris Turner. And we are your co-hosts. Let's go straight back in. We're travelling somewhere completely different now, far from Britain's grey shores to St James in Montego Bay, Jamaica. Where my mate Barrington Chambers grew up. As a baby, I grew up hearing my mom play in the harmonica in the house. I didn't know my granddad, my mom's dad. He died before I was born, but he died leaving a saxophone and a harmonica. So my mom had it, and I decided I want to learn to play. The environment I was in, I would say the communities, school communities in the city, the inner city and all those areas, everybody would learn to play something, because it's like that in Jamaica. We would sit with the... the, the principal of the school and he would play the big grand piano and then we would have to choose an instrument and we would have to follow the melody of what he was playing. There's a place called the boys club, even though girls go, to, go there, you learn to play every instrument you can put your hand on. You're taught to play it. What I used to do as a little child, I used to stand on my auntie's fence and listen to, there's a marching band at the boys club and they used to march round and round the block every evening, they, you know, they don't just sit in the room and practice. They decided to march. So you have saxophone, alto sax, baro sax, you have flute, violin, everything. They just march and play. I used to listen to tapes with my granddad at first, which he died before I was born, so I didn't know him. My mom used to play, but not professionally, as I said, mess around. Then my uncle Neville, which is my dad's uncle, so he's my granduncle. He was a banjo, professional banjo player, guitarist, lead and rhythm guitar. So he used to play in a lot of calypso, mento, rumba, those type of music. And then Jimmy Cliff, I grew up hearing that, oh, Jimmy's your cousin. I thought, oh, that's all right. <laughs> you know? Barrington's own journey started a long way from Bristol but we're joining him now for the start of his city journey at Arnolfini. Is it on? It's on now. My name is Woo Barrington, mm -hmm. and I'm going to be walking with Marcus today across the city centre towards Union Street, then back to my little pub, which we have a little water hole there. I'm Marcus, and I am the travelling companion. I've just met Barrington today, but I'm realising that he's a very smooth talker. So, uh, yes, it's going to be interesting. Marcus runs a think tank working to improve diversity in the creative industries. He has lots of questions. So how do you find it when you walk into different spaces where the light changes? Does that affect you or does it make up? Yes, it does affect me. Because, okay. for example, if I'm coming from outside, which is natural light, yeah. coming into the building, yeah. I have to stop for a few seconds to acclimatise... 
Once outside, they stop not far away on the harbour side, beneath some trees whose roots are pushing up through the cobbled floor. Marcus reads the first wild card. Take a moment to stand together, notice your breath, notice the ground beneath the feet and the movement in the air and the sounds of the city. As you set out on this first part of your journey together, take this awareness with you. Notice the city's soundscape, the changing surfaces underfoot, the movement of the air and the aromas, the flavours and the textures that you encounter along the way. I can hear music in the distance. And because I'm a musician, I always like to follow the music sound. Right. And it's really cobbled here, so... Yes. We're not going to go too fast on it. Mm. Okay? Yes. So I, I can smell food. Oh. I'm not sure what kind of food it is, but it smells good. Uh, and I can feel the breeze. It's coming from the direction that we're walking towards. And it's interesting that this part of the city is quite Yes, I was going to say, overhead, if you listen, the sound overhead... Yes. It's really quiet overhead. Mm -hmm. And I can hear like water fountain, water, so, you know, some water. Yeah. All right, so we're going to proceed. Yes. Let's proceed. As they set off towards Barrington's first stopping point, we are heading back to Jamaica. When I was little and trying to be a musician, my cousins or uncles, they used to say to me, go and get a proper education. There's no money in music. so. After school, like I would say in the 80s, I gave up playing instruments and then I did engineering, mechanical engineering. Barrington graduated winning his year's top student award and moved into engineering jobs in the hotels and cruise ships around Montego Bay. Right here in Mobile, we could run this festival for two weeks and you wouldn't get tired of reggae music. Montego Bay is the birthplace of the world-famous Reggae Sunsplash Festival and a magnet for many of the world's best-known reggae musicians. Pop stars, celebrities and recording artists of all genres set up homes in the mansions and penthouses overlooking the beach. And sometimes that music world and Barrington's engineering work crossed paths. So one day my boss said to me, oh, we've got a job over Johnny's house. So... <laughs> So, you know, anybody could be Johnny. So the morning we turn up at one of the hotels where we generally base, that's the Half Moon Hotel. And then we got in the Jeep and we drove, drove up to this house and reached the gate and these armed guards <laughs> opened these massive high steel gates. The, the garden is higher, raised a bit higher than the house. So it's like on a slope. And then they have a blueprint to say they want to make a, a Avery for birds. And they put it in these fountains right around. There's fountains right through. And then in the middle, there's one big massive fountain. And we start setting up and we put things together. And then we made this nice area. And you can be there working and you hear somebody walking past and singing with his guitar over his shoulder. And Johnny going for a walk, which is Johnny Cash. In his full black, in his black shorts, black t-shirt. <laughs> walking up through the golf course. He just walk on his own through the bush, singing, writing songs in his head and... Yes. Back in Bristol, in the city journey, Barrington and Marcus have skirted the shared space in the centre, gone past the PMT music shop from Chris's journey and into the busy Broadmead shopping area, arriving at Barrington's first stopping point. So we're at the corner of, we're just inside Tesco's. 
on the, on the corner of Union Street. This is where I generally come and do my shopping on a Friday or Thursday or Friday. So a lot of the people in here would know me. Okay. So generally when I walk in, there's always a lady security here. They would generally get a basket, yes. take me to customer service, okay. and then somebody would walk me around to oh, nice. do my necessities. Barrington and Chris both use this shop. Yeah, that Tesco on Union Street, I know that one as well. Um, it's very handy because, A, it's easy to find. It's on the corner. But um, it's also got... You can always hear it, the, 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 the tills beeping, the... Yes. Yeah, and, the baskets. And it's a massive door at the front. It's like a shutter-type door. Do you notice Tesco's have a certain smell as well? It's kind of yes. like... <laughs> it's like plastic and fruit. Yes, because... Mix. When you get in there, I don't know how much you, you concentrate when you're in there. As you go in, the fruit and veg are right at the front. Yeah, and guess, over to yeah. the left immediately are the baked cakes. So they're fresh and nice. And as you go, that smell just... Ooh, you just want to go through the door. Because <laughs> what I like about that, even though it's a, a city centre store and it's, you know, it's busy, but the staff are always pretty quick to get you help. Yes, they, they get a basket first. Even yeah, if you yeah. want one item, they pick up a basket first. And then they say, oh, which side do you want me to guide you on? And yeah. Which is good. It may not sound very glamorous, but shops, pubs, or anywhere else that provides good VI customer service are an absolute necessity and become trusted stopping points in the city. I do have a serious love of shopping. Mm. <laughs> some, have named, some have named it an addiction. <laughs> Anila again. And um, I think that my main points really are that... Um, Getting to the actual shops isn't always easy because there's no landmarks to tell you where you are and where the shops are. So as a completely blind person as I am, mm. you know, I know I know that some of them have got big colourful signs and all the rest of it and people with some sight can normally find the ones they've got to know. Whereas I don't really have that. I do have to rely on sound to walk close to the doorways, which is hazardous in itself because people trying to come in and out. So when you have done the bit about finding the shop, you then have to kind of try and listen to usually where the tills are because that's where I sort of expect there to be members of staff. So I try to follow the sounds. But obviously, you know, as well as I do, that there's like there's clothes rails, there's shelves, there's yeah. just clutter all mm. over the place. So and people. So it's just trying to get to where you need to be to get the assistance. I don't think sighted people realise how easy they've got it, you know, to walk into a place and just look around with their eyes and see where they need to go and just go there. Despite these challenges, Anila still loves going shopping. But not everyone feels that way. Chris, are you into shopping? I, I shopping, not so much. I mean, um, if I go to a clothes shop, it'll be um, sometimes with, with a mate or a family member. Yeah. And But I, um, I don't like to spend too long in there. And oh. I, I either like to get something and get out, but if I go in and don't get anything, it feels... Like a waste... Completely wasted. <laughs> a waste of time. Yeah. <laughs> However, Anila does find an ally. So, Barrington, do you like shopping for clothes? I love clothes shopping. And I'm well coordinated. Like, when I go shopping, I you know our colour coordinator that we use is? Yeah. I'd like to take my colour coordinator with me. And when I take it out in stores and put it on things, people say, what are you doing? Trying to tap the clothes. They think I'm... <laughs> I don't know what I <laughs> yes. And I said, no, no, I'm checking the colour. Oh, okay. Red. Pale. Yellow. A colour coordinator, or talking colour detector, is a handy piece of technology that tells you the colour that you point it at. Light green. Yellow. 
Fabric's really important, isn't it? Yes. How it feels. It has texture, to be, yes. Yeah, it's not just about the colour. I mean, that matters as well, but mm -hmm. also how it feels. Yeah. And I remember my brother came here from America some years ago and he brought me two trousers and I said, wow, what's this? Because I've never seen, you know, stretch material before, yeah. like, I did ever since. If it's not them, I don't buy any denim <laughs> material anymore. And I remember being in stores with my PA I used to have. And sometimes I said to her, I fit the shirt and I said, what do you think about the shirt? They said, oh yeah, that looks like nice on you. And I thought, no, nah, I don't like it. I want the shirt to cover my bum. <laughs> or the sleeves must be a bit longer. Oh, you're too fussy. So in the end, the way she was behaving, I thought, no, 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 you're not good for me there. No, I can't, can't have a PA that doesn't get fashion. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. Let's get back to Marcus and Barrington and their city journey. By now, they have left Tesco and are making their way across the city to the last stop on the route. Because sometimes what I used to do then is don't come straight up on this road. I used to go across over on the other side where the eye hospital is. Right. Go along the eye hospital and go keep left around the corner there. Right. And go round behind the BRI there and straight around. Continue okay. left, right around. Mm. And then down the slope, then I find my way yes. to the, the sportsman. Barrington used to do deliveries in the city and still has a photographic memory map of the streets in his head, often advising taxi drivers on the best routes to take. You mentioned before about you used to do a lot of this journey at night. Yes, yeah. Because it's, as I said, when I first started to lose my sight, it was easier for me to see in the night. Mm -hmm. Because as the, the doctor said, my pupil dilates in the night. So the artificial light, which is a street light, yeah. I could see a bit more. For example, the, the double yellow line on the road, right. I cannot identify them in the day, right. but I can identify them in the night. Okay. So I would use my cane and travel along the double yellow line at night. Right. Barrington moved to Bristol in 1999 to be near family members who were running successful businesses in the city. It was around that time that he first noticed issues with his sight. I remember it, I was in England here and it was a winter time and it's completely different from in the Caribbean, which is bright. And I noticed sometimes I could see like little dots in my left eye, but I didn't take it for any, you know. But I remember when I was back in Jamaica again now and it was bright, when I'm driving and you look through the windscreen, there's like a fly on the, the windscreen or something and you wipe it off and it's still there. And then that dot gets a bit wider, so it's covering my left eye. So to see my left wing mirror, I would have to turn my head to the left instead of glancing. And then that's where I realised something was going on. Barrington was diagnosed with glaucoma, a common cause of sight loss that affects the optic nerve and can lead to blindness. He had a major operation, but his sight deteriorated. The insurance company decided not to cover me again, because in the engineering you have to be covered by insurance, you know, if you get injured on the job or anything like that. And that's when I thought, oh... I might have to find something else to do. I was lost. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. This was a difficult and challenging time in Barrington's life. Although initially able to get part-time employment through the Remploy scheme that provided employment support for disabled people, government subsidies were withdrawn in the early 2000s, leaving Barrington without work. He went back to college to learn more IT skills. It was around then that Barrington and I first met at a job club run by RNIB in Bedminster, where I now work. And then, in the midst of all of that, I decided to pick up music again. Just as he was shifting his work back to his roots as a musician. 
Barrington had been active in setting up and performing at open mic sessions at the Plantation, his cousin's Caribbean restaurant in Bristol, when he was contacted by a fellow musician from the legendary reggae band Black Roots. And I remember the lead singer for Black Roots band, Charlie, saw me out the road one day and we were chatting. And he said to me, we really want to start a music group for all the youths in the area. And I said, yeah, that's good. We are the Bristol Reggae Orchestra and we are here to make you dance tonight. The group soon became the Bristol Reggae Orchestra. I was one of the founding members, so five of us got together. I write songs for them, rhythms, play percussion if needed, do MC. I can sing. <laughs> we play in London, Bristol, Cardiff. We play at summer festivals, which is the Harbour Side, St Paul's Carnival, you name it, all over. And you've been taking music into the schools? People volunteer from out of the Bristol Reggae Orchestra. And we do go to different schools, like once a month, twice a month, every other month. And then what we do, get the kids up on stage and teach them how to play the instruments. So we teach them to play trombone, saxophone, clarinet, flute, viola, drums, bass, guitar, <laughs> harmonica. <laughs> Just get up. And you know what kids are like? When they're going for it, you can't stop them. And performing on stage now, Barrington refines that joy for music that he had in his youth growing up in Jamaica. And also, this last tour that we're on, which hasn't finished yet because we were supposed to finish in Manchester this October coming, Aswad decided to join them. Aswad or another legendary reggae band. So... We, we joined him on the, the Bristol leg in St. George's, Brandon Hill. And then the guy emailed me and said, Barrington, can you do a little DJ piece in the middle of the song? So I went around and, and listened to the song again on YouTube and then wrote something. And it goes like, People makes the world go round. Round and round and me say round and round. You could a solid like a rock or like a rolling stone. Big like a king who sit up on his throne and me say people makes the world go round. Round and round and me say round and round. And we had a sold out concert there. It was fantastic. Back in our city journey, Barrington and Marcus have arrived outside Barrington's last stop, the Sportsman's Pub. Marcus still has lots of questions. One question though, how do you find people's expectations of what it is that you can and cannot do versus what you know you can and cannot do? All right, this is a very, very good question. Mm. Think about it. I'm from the ethnic minority group. Right. People from my group, especially Jamaicans, yes. the elders, yes. they see me walking down the street like in town here with my stick. Right. They would really almost want to tell me off. Yes. Oh, you shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be in town on your own. Right. I said, but I cannot sit at home and vegetate. If I want to go places, I'm off. Right. And do you find that sometimes other people's concerns for your well-being is limiting to you? Yeah, it, it puts me off sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm thinking there's danger out there that they can see that I can't see. Right. And Anila has something to say about her own culture's attitudes to disability. For the help of the podcast, I mm. am Asian and my parents are from Pakistan. Mm -hmm. um, 
and so it's but the community the asian community in general and not just from pakistan but you know from india from from any most asian places disability is still very much a taboo right. and so it's not something that people talk openly about it's not something that you know i mean it hasn't been something that's been very open and non-taboo in the west for very long either um but it is now you know so i so here so obviously i'm british born and bred and so i've done a lot of stuff with rnib and other organizations doing talks so there's a there's an organization called the pakistan pakistan association um i don't know that much about them but i through the rnib i kind of got got um linked up with them to go and do a talk to the pakistani community about about being me being blind and my life and stuff to raise awareness and to kind of in a way bring it out in the open and show them that all is not lost just because I'm blind and to encourage them to ask questions but but they didn't nobody asked questions um and I even sort of said that I'm going to be around afterwards with my mum and dad were there as well and I sort of said and we're all happy to kind of talk to people about any concerns or curiosities or whatever you know just to break down the barriers but mm. but people didn't ask questions. Anila comes from a big family three of her siblings share the same genetic sight condition she was born with she talks about what it is like being at the intersection of different types of community. There's been a massive fusion in my sort of household because, you know, my parents are from Pakistan. They have a lot more of their Pakistani culture in them than me and my brothers and sisters do. Yeah. And me and my brothers and sisters are not completely westernised. Um, and so we're somewhere, we're something in the middle and it's constantly always been trying to balance and even sometimes justify our position to both sides, to our parents and to friends. In the eyes of the general public, I appear not to have a culture or a colour. I, I, my dominant feature that stands out and what I would tend to be described as is the blind lady. And that becomes the focal point a lot of the time, whether it's, well, I don't know, whether it's taxi drivers or you go in a shop or you meet yeah. new people. It's the thing people want to talk about and people want to know about. Yeah. Um, and, you know, most of the time that's fine. And some of the time you think actually there's a lot more to me than just being blind. One of the things that I noticed on this journey was things I don't take notice of. So like cycle tracks in the middle of the street. And I've walked on these streets before and I've never taken any notice of them. And people uh, walking towards you. Yes, and people walking towards me. Because I usually just, I make a, 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 an unconscious decision to, to adjust to their movement. But it was interesting walking with you and watching other people's reactions yeah yeah and and a couple of people panicked barrington and marcus are now settled in one of barrington's favorite watering holes the sportsman's pub which has a long history of serving the vi community people do i don't know it's just it's just hard to understand how people would treat a visual impaired person so it's a very weird Social politics. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. I just say it's a political lie. They got talking about strange attitudes and questions we all get asked. Even inside here, yeah. but not in here much, but when we go to places, people do ask us some weird questions. Mm. People would say, are you married? Are you thinking of getting married? How are you going to find a way? Well, Alan, we're a hearing aid, so when it, right. it's very noisy, I would walk in front yes. and they don't follow me. Right. 
but I don't use my cane. I've got it folded up in my hand. But right. because I know the layout and right. people know me, so they see me coming, they give me an Alan way. Yes. So the guy turned around and said, Oh, you're helping me? I said, No, I'm visually impaired just like him. He said, So your eyes are open. Mm. So it was what he turned around and said to me, uh, The year we go now. So I turned and said to him, Have you ever heard this word? You're born with sight, mm. but you're lacking in vision. Mm. <laughs> yes. And he looked at me and he, Oh, I've never heard that. I said, Think about it. Which got the three of us started. Do you have any experiences like that about people, uh, the way the way people treating you in a similar sort of a way when you're out and about? Um, occasionally, I mean, sometimes in a pub or something like that, people seem uh, not people that obviously have known me a while, but they, they seem almost taken aback that I've gone to a pub on my own or gone anywhere on my own, <laughs> like 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 um, like you're supposed to just stay in and wait for someone to take you out, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and even the occasion, I mean, this was just one rude uh, individual, but sort of basically said to me when I was out shopping, where's your carer? Which is kind of like... Yeah, <laughs> yeah I get that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, 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 you might have had this as well, where if someone's... Which is good, someone's offered to guide you somewhere or help you cross the road. If you ask them a question just to engage them in conversation, I've had it where they kind of ignore you. Whether they're so concentrating on yeah. trying to help or they're just they're not actually listening to anything you're, you're no. saying. Yeah. And I find that actually that happens. So that happens really across the cultures, doesn't it? Because I think all three of us are from a different cult- culture group. Yeah. yeah. Um, and But that, that experience is the same for all of us. The fact that we all get that whole people trying to be a bit... Um, well, so I've always called it a bit protective and controlling. Yeah. yeah. And then... This happens a lot in the street. People might be talking in the middle of the road or in the middle of the street. Yeah. And then as you approach, they stop talking and I think, Actually, it would help just carry on and know where, where you are. are. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And you don't know if they've moved or if they're just standing yeah. there gawping or yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you guys get this, but I get a lot of, but you don't look blind. You don't look or act blind. And, um, you know, so they don't really understand what the stick is. Plus, I probably don't help myself because my cane is pink. Um, <laughs> not white. Um, but they, um, but I do get a lot of that. So I get all of it. You know, watch where you're going and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, a guy once said, why, why are you walking around with that staff? Oh, I, was, I, was, <laughs> I was waiting to go into a loo and I was sort of just leaning on it. But it's still a white cane. It's like, who do you think you are, Lord and Manor, going around with your staff? <laughs> Like Gandalf from Lord of the Rings. And with the image of the Lord of the Manor and Gandalf striding out into the city with their white staffs, Barrington and Marcus have reached the end of Barrington's journey and head back to where they started to download their audio from the walk and have a well-earned cup of tea. That's it, Chris. It's the end of our episode. And what did we discover? The best conversation happens over a pint. Well, ours do anyway. As you prepare to move back into your day or night, wherever you are, whoever you are, perhaps next time you're out and about, listen out for the sound marks of the places you visit regularly and think about the stories that lie behind each of us, the lives lived, the rich and textured tapestry that makes up who we are. We'll be handing the baton over to our fellow City of Threads teammates for the next episode. But first, we'll recommend you tune in to the sister episode of You Either Get Hit By A Bike Or You Don't. Where through the magic of immersive sound, we'll take you deeper into the heart of some of the places and moments of our journeys. 
so you get to experience the city in our shoes. Best listened to on headphones. To find out more about these podcasts and the people featured in this episode, you can find additional information at www.partexchangeco.org.uk.